The scripture for today's sermon is Jude 1, 17 through 23. The word of God speaks to us. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is the word of God to us. Hey guys, good morning. It's, uh, it's good to be with you today. If we haven't met yet, my name is Josh Curry, and one of the pastors here. And uh, it, it might be a little bit of sentimentality in that we just graduated our youngest child on Friday and then we got to participate in his public swearing in to join the Marines. Um, but I actually don't think it's just that. I, I think that what I'm feeling today is also just profound gratitude to the Lord for you guys. And I say that because all over the country, churches are wilding out memberships of churches are freaking out. People are divided. They are anxious. They are angry. They are stingy. They are not participating. Uh, membership of churches tends to be shrinking. And in the midst of all that, like, I walk in here on a Sunday after a weekend of you guys doing life together and being on mission, and I walk by the den, and I see over 20 people going through a new believers class, and it just strikes me just how kind God's been to us. And I'm thankful, I'm thankful. Uh, thinking about the book of Jude, which is the book of the Bible that we've been walking through for the last three weeks, it just kind of fills me with a lot of, I think, healthy pride in our church and in you guys that you're willing to show up and go through really hard things. This is not an easy church to be a member of. We ask a lot of you, and we have high expectations for you, and we do difficult things like, Last week on Mother's Day, preached through the hardest text that I've ever preached in 20 years of ministry. Please, Lord, never let me have a Mother's Day like that ever again. Uh, but I'm proud of you, and I think that there's health in that, and there's beauty in that. So let me tell you where we've been. If, uh, if you're new today, this is what we've been doing the last three weeks. We've been walking through the book of Jude. The first week, we talked about the big idea in this book that we're called to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And we talked about the fact that the faith contains three strands, all of which are essential to authentic Christianity. You have belief, which is the doctrinal substance of the faith. You have obedience, which is the moral substance of the faith. And you have love, which is the relational substance of the faith. Then last week, we walked through the anatomy of apostasy. And last week, Jude took us through in great detail what it looks like to walk away from Jesus. He started with mentioning subjective faith, that people rely on their own dreams instead of the external dynamics of what Jesus has taught. They then moved to the perversion of grace. Grace becomes cheap. It becomes a license to sin instead of the help of God to repent. It then turns into the rejection of authority to being reduced to base instinct, and then he mentioned the certainty of judgment. And today in our text, Jude is gonna help us by getting really practical. 
I would say that week one of this series in the opening verses, we saw the fatherly heart of this book. Week two, Jude was very prophetic. He was direct, he was no hold barred, he was aggressive in unpacking what it looks like to walk away from Jesus. And this week, he's just incredibly pastoral. He's like a really good counselor and a really good pastor walking us through what it looks like to contend for the faith. So I'm going to pray for you, ask you to pray for me, and if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Jude. It's at the very end of the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one of these out of the window sills. Take that with you today. That's our gift to you. If you want a really nice Bible, there's some in Lost and Found. You can just scrape the name off later. <laughs> you, you guys are a hot mess with Lost and Found, boy. I mean, some of you jokers, you go out and buy a $45 Yeti mug, and then you leave it here. I'm, I'm claiming all those in the next two weeks. Okay, so let's get after it. I'm going to pray for you. You pray for me, and we'll do some work. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your kindness. And uh, Lord, I'm under no illusions that our church is perfect. I know that we have areas of weakness and sin and brokenness and division and things going on that are tragic, and yet in the midst of all of those things, in a moment where ministry is exponentially more difficult, and in some ways where the church in the West seems particularly anemic, I'm just thankful that we're here. I'm thankful that we're walking through a hard book of the Bible. I'm thankful that people are hungry and open and we're being deepened. So would you meet us today, and would you help us to hear your voice, we pray, in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen. Hey, so let, let me set the first part of our text up today by talking about bicycles. I love bicycles, and over the course of the last year, it's been really fun to see my wife get into riding bikes. And uh, what we've been doing quite a bit is we'll take like a Friday, which is my day off, or a part of a Saturday, and we'll go on bike dates in OKC. And we'll essentially get on the bike, and we'll go cruise the city, we'll stop for lunch, and it's just a blast, man, to be outside, to be with my girl, and to have a really good time. Well, if you know anything about bikes and getting into bikes, when you're starting to do like longer rides, you kind of need a mentor because you don't know what you don't know. You need a coach that's going to talk to you about getting a chamois pad so that you can walk after you ride your bike for over 20 miles. Uh, you need someone to talk to you about the magic of chamois butter so you don't get chafed. Praise be to God. You, you need somebody that's going to be a good guide and talk to you about nutrition because if you're doing some sort of endurance sport for over like two hours, you got to eat or you're going to bonk. Uh, not that I've ever seen Ch Chad Kinzer bonk, but I've heard it's happened. I've heard it's happened. And so like if you've been riding bikes a little bit longer than your friends, your job is to make sure that you get your friends back and that you help them out. Well, here's what happened. I turned out to be like the worst bike guide for my own wife. We went on our first kind of long bike ride, and I was just so excited about riding bikes with her, and I wasn't thinking about it, and I'm a bit slow, and so I didn't tell her that she needed to bring any snacks, right? I didn't talk to her at all about how long it was going to take us. I was thinking, I was thinking that we would cruise, and we'd be a lot faster than what we ended up being, and I was planning on doing a shorter route, but I didn't pay attention to the route. I was just sort of having fun and enjoying the outdoors and looking at my pretty wife. And so what I thought was going to be like an hour of riding bikes turned into three and a half hours of riding bikes 
into 30 mile an hour headwinds with no food or snacks. All right, it was the Bataan Death March. My wife was so angry, like there's a kind of fury in a woman's eye that can only be established when her blood pressure is that low. Like, hangry, hangry. And, and to top it all off and make it worse, like I had to fly out for a church planning trip at the end of the day. So the last five miles of that bike ride, I literally had to ditch her and just go back to the house, shower and leave. And so th this was not a good moment, man. This is not, this is not a good date. This was not good for her soul. This was not good for our intimacy. This was on no level a healthy thing for our marriage. And uh, in, in the midst of all that, here's what's really funny. I knew she was really mad, but I just wanted to get her to talk about it, to like forgive me and let me off the hook. So before I ditched her the last five miles, I was like, hey, are you mad at me? <laughs> Which is such a stupid question. Like, clearly she's mad at me, bordering on hatred in her soul. Um, but I asked her, are you mad at me? And here's what she said. Ice cold, she said, hey, I'm just really disappointed. <laughs> okay. Fail. Fail on every level. I didn't set her up. I didn't tell her what to expect. I didn't get her ready. Now, let me just try to tell you why that matters. And sometimes I'm kind of reticent about using funny stories to set up serious things, but sometimes it helps. And he here's why this matters for our text today. Um, Jude and the other writers of the New Testament want to be good guides to the journey of faith. They want you to know what to expect. They want to give you the fine print. They want to tell you how difficult it's going to be. And what we find in our text today is that Jude doesn't want the people of God to be surprised. So look what happens in verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Okay, here's what he's saying. I want you to have full disclosure that the apostles of Jesus Christ have promised that in the last days, and the last days refers to all of history from the resurrection of Jesus Christ until the return of Jesus Christ. We don't know how long that's going to be, but that's the last days. And what he's saying is that the apostles told the early church, and they would remind us today, that until Jesus returns, that we will have the prevalence of both false teachers, and pretend Christians. And what I want to do for just a couple of minutes is I want to help you to not be surprised. In a moment where it's more difficult to be a follower of Jesus, in a moment where more churches are fracturing, I want to remind you of just a few things. I want to remind you, number one, don't be surprised by suffering. Don't be surprised by suffering. Listen to this in 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Do not be surprised by the fiery trial. As though something strange was happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Here's what he's saying. Hey, part of the journey of discipleship will 100%, absolutely, you're guaranteed it will entail suffering. You will suffer. On the journey of discipleship, there will be moments where it's hard, 
where it's painful, where you experience loss and setback and grief and mourning and longing and angst. Don't be surprised by that. Don't listen to any evangelist, any teacher, any Christian life coach, any writer that gives you the expectation that the journey of discipleship is always gonna be easy. And don't listen to any Christian writer, author, life coach that tells you that if things are hard, then that just means that you're not doing it right. It's gonna be hard. It's gonna be hard. In addition, the Bible reminds us to not be surprised by the hostility of the world. Listen to what Jesus said himself in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay, listen, there are moments in culture where Christianity has been more popular, moments where it has been less popular, but here's the guarantee, 100% money back guarantee from Jesus, the head of the church, the son of God, that if you follow him, there will be people that hate you because of your commitment to obey Jesus. Some of you are feeling the weight of that even in your life right now. There's a cost to following Jesus. There's people that don't understand. There's people that would think that you're making choices that don't reflect the best way of living simply by giving Jesus your yes. In addition, the Bible would say don't be surprised by spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare, listen to this in 1 Peter chapter five. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, pro prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, track with me on this. This is really important. As sort of post-enlightenment Westerners, we have this funny view of the devil that's sort of this caricature of a made-up beast who looks like he got a onesie from Christie's Toy Box for Valentine's Day. It's like a red jumpsuit with a pitchfork, and he's got a little... He's got a little tail and cute horns. Okay, let, let me just tell you the truth. Like, there are invisible forces around you that are real, and they affect human history. And there is such a thing as fallen angels, known as demons, who hate you, who hate you. And there's a created being who was an angel who is now known as the devil, Satan, or Lucifer, who is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He wants to kill you. He despises the things of Jesus, which means to say yes to Jesus is to not step into living a life of a spiritual, all-inclusive resort where everything's easy, but it's to actually take sides in a cosmic struggle in which God absolutely will win, but the battle is real nonetheless. Satan wants to destroy you, and James's contribution to these warnings is he tells us don't be surprised by the presence of false teaching and pretend Christians. He says it is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit or not born again. So listen, these are things that we should be aware of. These are things that we should be alert for. Now, track with me. That doesn't mean that you have to live your life in gloominess. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't celebrate. That doesn't mean that Christians can't play. That doesn't mean that we always have to be morbid and negative. But it does mean that to say yes to Jesus is to enter into a real struggle and that struggle is gonna cost you. It's going to cost you. Now, what he's gonna do now is he's gonna transition from that warning, from that guarantee, to giving us two really practical categories for contending for the faith. How do we contend for the faith? What does it look like, what does it look like to live a life 
where the faith once for all delivered is treasured and you finish the race. And what he's going to do is break it into two general categories. He's first going to remind us that it starts with taking responsibility for your faith. Take responsibility for your faith. So here's what's happened. Throughout this amazing book, in verses 5 through 19, Jude has given us a detailed analysis of false teaching and the departure of the faith. But then in verse 15, something happens that's really interesting. He says, but you, but you. And here's what he's doing with those two words. When he says, but you, he's telling those that would claim to be followers of Jesus that the most powerful thing that you could do to contend for the faith is not by constantly deflecting against others or blaming others or being anxious about others, but the most important thing that you could do for the health of the church and for your own spiritual journey is for you to be a grown-up that takes responsibility for your own Christian journey. That you are, you are, to be responsible. And what we've seen throughout this book is that there's a beautiful tension, that God is keeping his people. He's the one that's really strong. He preserves his people, and all those, all those that the Father gives the Son will get to the end. That's the guarantee of Scripture. And yet, in this amazing book, we're reminded that we have a responsibility to exercise agency in keeping ourselves in the love of God. And keeping ourselves in the love of God is exactly, is exactly the point of this entire book. Keeping yourself in the love of God. Abiding in the love of Jesus. And what Jesus tells us that's really interesting is that keeping ourselves in his love is not a vibe, it's not a feeling, it's not goosebumps on the back of your neck, although track with me, there are moments in the Christian life where there are tremendous experiences and emotional highs and all kinds of moments where you're really in love with Jesus in a profoundly stomach-altering kind of way. And that's good and that's beautiful. But what Jesus tells his disciples is this, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. How do we abide in Jesus? Well, we keep his commandments. Now, Jude is going to help us figure out how to do that, because it's difficult. How do we follow Jesus when he calls us to the narrow way, when he calls us to forgive people that hurt us, when he calls us to love even our enemies? when he calls us to offer our bodies to him as a living sacrifice, when he calls husbands to love their wife like Jesus loves the church, giving ourselves up for them, when he calls parents to not provoke their children to anger but raise them in the fear and adoration of the Lord, when he calls children to honor and obey their parents. These are all things that are really difficult. They're really hard. How do we live lives of generosity? How do we live lives of mission? Well, in keeping ourselves in the love of God, Judah's gonna give us some practical things that we need to do. He's gonna mention these. Number one, we're to build ourselves up in the faith. Look at verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith. Okay, what does this mean? Here's what he's saying. Um, nobody becomes a Christian and arrives at Christian maturity and understanding because you went into the waters of baptism. Are you tracking with me? All right, no parent in this room is ever gonna expect 
your child, who's an infant, to be brought home from the hospital and to immediately start doing chores around the house, right? You don't expect that. You expect your infant to be an infant, to be dependent. But your expectation as a parent is going to grow to be developmentally appropriate as your child ages. You're going to give them more responsibilities. They're going to have higher expectations. They're going to be required to participate in the life of your family unless you're completely failing them in preparing them to launch into the world. You're going to ask them to do hard things. You're going to ask them to be responsible. And here's what Jude is telling us. Building ourselves up in the most holy faith is really similar. It's taking responsibility for your journey of faith that you're going to develop and train and grow and learn. We talked about the faith once for all delivered, including belief and including obedience and including love. And what he's saying is there are to be no spectators of the Christian faith. You can't drift through your journey of discipleship and arrive one year from now at a place of deeper maturity than you're at today without building yourself up, right? Uh, I love the fact that we've got a bunch of people in our church that are in in, uh, medicine, and we've got a lot of PTs, and I I love my PT. She's rescued me many times. Uh, I've put a couple of her children through college with various injuries, and uh, one of the things that's fascinating about recovery from an injury or just getting better and working out is that your body breaks down and you have to feed it and you have to care for it and you have to put the inputs into your body to create the kind of outputs that you want to get out of your body. And so track with me, building yourself up in the most, in the most holy faith requires that you're just intentional about pursuing places to meet with Jesus and grow. Uh, over the course of this summer, we're going to do a new sermon series called Rhythms of Grace. And it's just going to be, it's going to be a journey through various Christian disciplines. We're going to talk about prayer and Bible study and community and Sunday morning. We're going to talk about uh, silence and solitude. We're going to talk about fasting. And when we talk about those spiritual disciplines, sometimes we can get all stressed out and think, oh man, that's legalism. You're saying that we do those things to earn God's love. No, I'm not saying we do those things to earn God's love. I'm saying we do those things to enjoy God's love, to abide in God's love. If you drift through the next 12 months of your life with Jesus, you are not gonna be more mature in 12 months. You're gonna be more anemic in 12 months. To be a person in our cultural moment and to finish the race of faith, to finish the course, to be kept in the love of God, requires that you build yourself up in the most holy faith, reading and praying and engaging the things of God. He then mentions another, which is connected, that we are to pray in the Holy Spirit. We're to pray in the Holy Spirit. This is connected to the first idea. We're to pray in the Holy Spirit because building yourself up in the most holy faith is not something you can do in your own strength. And when he says pray in the Holy Spirit, he's not just referring to the gift of tongues, although it includes the gift of tongues, which is a beautiful spiritual gift that we believe in that I would encourage you to earnestly desire and pray for for the edification of your life. But he's not just talking about tongues. He's talking about all spirit-led prayer, that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and the Bible says that the Holy Spirit convicts us, and when we feel his conviction, we're to respond in prayers of repentance. 
It's the Holy Spirit that helps us love Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit that helps us to learn the Bible. It's the Holy Spirit that guides us and gives us comfort when things are difficult. It's the Holy Spirit that helps order our step. It's the Holy Spirit that helps enable us to be compassionate and caring and present with one another. It's the Spirit who gifts us to serve one another. Here's what Jude is saying. It's beautiful and complex, though simple on the surface. He's saying, hey, to keep yourself in the love of God, you need the Holy Spirit, you need to listen to him, and you need to pray as he leads you. You need to ask for God to help you. Okay, listen, prayer, prayer is, prayer is the lifeblood of a Christian, that we breathe in grace and we breathe out prayers. And, and there's so many different ways to pray in the Bible that there's almost no wrong way to pray if you're praying through the finished work of Jesus. Sometimes prayers can sound like pouring out complaints and lamentations to God, and that can be spirit-led. Sometimes prayers sound like just unbelievable celebration where we're shouting and singing and honoring God for what he's done. Sometimes prayers are just simple as saying thank you. Like, increasingly in my life, as a guy who uh, sort of despised Bible Belt religious culture and who was a Pharisee against Pharisees, I'm coming back even to like the beauty of praying before meals. I always saw that as kind of silly and trite and religious and increasingly I'm like, hey man, that's a really special thing that for most of us, somewhere between eight and 16 or 17 times a day, that would be me, like we have an opportunity to thank God for feeding us, to listen to him, to pray for each other. So listen, what he's saying is, we're to take responsibility for our faith. We do so by knowing that we've got to build ourselves up, that you don't arrive at maturity by accident. And to do so, we need to live lives of prayer. He then mentions that we're to also wait for the mercy of Jesus. And this is really interesting because in the journey of faith, waiting for the mercy of Jesus is remembering that getting to the end requires living in the present, being rooted in the past, and waiting for the future. And here's what I mean by that. Um, when you are in one of those really difficult places where you're at a crossroads, where saying yes to Jesus is saying no to something that you deeply want. This happens in so many different ways, in ways that are simple and no big deal and in ways that are life-altering. You're in the middle of a difficult season in marriage, right? And to say yes to Jesus is you continue to pursue humility and repentance and you ask for help and you stay and you honor your spouse and you honor your covenant and you honor Jesus. But the crossroads might be, hey, there's this relationship at work and it feels way more exciting and I feel affirmed by this person and it feels like this is a place where deeper joy and delight can happen. Okay, you're at a crossroads, you're at a crossroads. To say yes to Jesus is to say no to something that feels like it would be way more fun, way more life-giving, way more full of delight and joy. And waiting for the mercy of Jesus is in that moment remembering the things that God has done for you in Jesus through the cross and resurrection. Remembering that in the future, all things are gonna be made whole in Jesus, that it's infinitely worth it, whatever you have to give up to follow Jesus in this life, and that there is no, there is no desire in your chest 
that's not going to find its perfect fulfillment on the great day when you see him face to face. So a lot of our saying no to the flesh and saying yes to Jesus requires the ability to see what's coming for us, to wait, to wait. Like if you're a single person, you're trying to pursue sexual fidelity to Jesus in a culture that says the most important way to self-actualize, to experience fulfillment and joy is sex, and that to not have sex is to sort of like lose, lose agency, lose a sense of purpose and self. To be celibate, which is, by the way, the command of Jesus if you're single, and if you're married, the command is sexual fidelity between a husband and a wife. That's really costly, it's really hard. How do you say no to the pleasures of the flesh and say yes to Jesus, well, part of it is waiting for the mercy that's going to be revealed, that it's worth it, that we live in light of eternity. Like, track with me, the road of discipleship is gonna have so many difficulties, so many pains, so many moments where you're called to bear a cross and follow Jesus, and doing so requires that you remember that this life, the Bible says, is short like a wisp of smoke that's here and gone, and eternity is really long, really long. So we make decisions in light of the mercy that's coming for us. We say no to things that Jesus says no to as we wait for him. Now, that's the first part. He wants us to take responsibility for our own faith, but he also wants us to show mercy, and I wanna read this really quickly and try to help make sense of this. Look at verse 22. He then transitions, and he says, have mercy on those that doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Okay, this is a great analogy. Here's, in essence, theologically what's happening. Um, when I was a little kid and my parents flew us to India, I remember the first time I ever heard a flight attendant give the speech about oxygen masks. Uh, make sure that you put on your oxygen mask before you assist any other passengers. And I thought as a kid, that is outrageous. Like clearly the right thing to do for my parents in the inevitable thing that's about to happen as we crash into the Atlantic is for them to put the oxygen mask on me, their beloved child, and then worry about themselves. Okay, here's what Jude's saying. He's saying, if you don't take responsibility for your own formation, for your own maturity, you're not going to be able to help anybody. So you taking responsibility to keep yourself in the love of God happens first so that you can then learn to show mercy on the people around you that are struggling. To be obsessed with all the problems around you and to overfunction and to become a busybody and to be one who's constantly refusing to feed yourself, but you're feeding everybody else, is a guarantee for disaster. So here's what he mentions. There's three kinds of mercy that he wants us to show. He first mentions show mercy on those that doubt. And this is really powerful. This is such good news. Um, this book has been really direct and really confrontational about apostasy, which is departing from the Christian faith. But track with me, apostasy is not the same thing as wrestling with doubt. To be a Christian, you're gonna have seasons where you wrestle with doubt. And if you wanna see the heart of Jesus for people struggling with doubt, look at what he does with Thomas after the resurrection. 
He doesn't shame Thomas. He doesn't embarrass Thomas. He doesn't abandon Thomas. He's compassionate to Thomas. So you are absolutely, you are absolutely in your journey of faith going to have seasons where particular doctrines are hard for you to believe or just the promises of God are hard for you to believe or you're experiencing so much pain and so much loss, it's hard to really believe that the Father loves you. There's seasons of doubt and what he's saying is show mercy to your brothers and sisters that are wrestling with doubt. Don't shun them, don't abandon them, don't push them out. We want to be the kind of church that when we have seasons of doubt, we have people around us that are going to show us mercy, that we can talk about it, that we can ask for help. Um, in 2020, I think it was, I, had, I just had one of the most painful years of my life. It was, it was a combination of some deep betrayals. It was the combination of some people that I really loved walking away from Jesus. It was trying to lead through a pandemic. It was... Uh, slander and attack and just exhaustion and the culmination of a lot of years of leadership and being sort of understaffed and wearing too many hats. And I was just physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. And in the midst of that, man, I just had some profound doubt. And I had moments where for the first time in 16 years of doing pastoral ministry, I started having legit, not just like the brief Monday morning quick fantasy about being like a park ranger, but like, <laughs> but which is like, they don't pay park rangers enough, but what an amazing job. You get to be outside, you're like, you're paid to be in a national park. That is incredible. We won't talk about that. Uh, <laughs> But like for the first time, I started having prolonged doubts about the faithfulness of God in my calling to be a pastor and real, real temptation to quit, to throw in the towel. And one of the things that was so powerful was that I had guys like Charlie Hall in my life and Rex Barrett and the cohort of pastors that I'm in with guys like Kevin Cauley and Steve Huber and Bob Thune and Hunter Beaumont. And instead of hiding the fact that I was wrestling with doubt, I put it on the table. And what I found from my brothers was kindness, was mercy, was prayer, was friendship, was support, was love. And I can honestly say that their mercy shown to me in my wrestling with doubt resulted in be, being more confident today in the love of God and in my calling to pastor than I was before. So show mercy to one another. He then mentions a different kind of mercy, that's snatching others out of the fire. Here's what he's saying. The stakes of walking away from Jesus are eternally high. And when you see a loved one, a person in your community group, a friend, an adult child, a spouse walking away from Jesus, we should, with unbelievable urgency and tenderness, pray for them, talk to them, and pursue them. The stakes are so high, we need to intensely respond to that crossroad moment where a person could be shipwrecking their faith. And we want to be the kind of church where we are mindful and ready to lean in and to love each other enough to have hard conversations. He then mentions one kind of mercy, the last kind, and I'll, I'll, I'll close with this. He then mentions showing mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Here's what he's saying. There, when you engage a person, especially in the three biggest categories of rebuke in the New Testament. So the strongest rebukes in the New Testament are all related to three categories of turning away from Jesus. 
sexual immorality that's unrepentant, division in the church where we bite and devour each other, and false teaching. And, and here's this thing that tends to happen as you're trying to engage someone that's wrestling with one of those three areas, we ourselves have to be really careful and really humble and really desirous of repenting and being cautious or we will tend in that engagement to find ourselves being attacked by the enemy and falling into profound sin and temptation ourselves. We have to be so cautious. We're to engage each other So if you've got a person in their community group and in three months they start to walk away from Jesus or the husband decides that he's gonna leave his wife and family or the wife decides that she's done and she's gonna bail or your single friend decides that it's okay to just, without the covenant of marriage, cohabitate and you're thinking, hey man, to say yes to this is to say clear, clearly no to Jesus. You're to engage them and pray for them and talk to them and appeal to them and plead with them, but you're to do so with a lot of sobriety and a lot of caution so that you yourself don't fall into pride and arrogance and the temptation of the devil. So I hope that today has been practical and helpful because what Jude is doing for us is so important. Here's what he's saying. Contending for the faith once for all delivered requires taking responsibility for your own journey with Jesus Build yourself up in the most holy faith. Pray in the spirit. All of that is connected to keeping yourself in the love of God. And as you take responsibility for your own journey of faith, be quick to show mercy because you've been shown mercy. Show mercy to those that doubt. Engage those that look like they're about to shipwreck their faith. And when you have to engage a brother or a sister who's falling into grievous sin, be really careful about your posture Make sure that you don't do so in arrogance or hostility. Do so with sobriety and do so being really cautious that you yourself don't fall into the same temptation. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray for my friends and for myself that you would help us to abide in the love of Jesus, that you would help us to finish the race set before us, that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit, that you would empower us and lead us and guide us. We pray today as we come to this meal that you would feed us. Help us to repent deeply. Help us to love you. Protect us from the world, the flesh, and the evil one. Help us to be alert and sober. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen.